Garris and Jan are authors. They've written, uh, I know Garris has written, what, six books, something like that? And a little, yeah, something like A that. few books, yeah. and, and Jan's an incredible author herself and writer, and I just want to hand this over to them, and let's just Thanks, open Doug. up our hearts. Amen? Thanks, Doug. Thanks, buddy. Good morning. Beautiful time of worship. Yeah. I found myself singing in the spirit, um, which I oftentimes do, but not always in every place that I go, you know, am I as inspired? (laughs) And um, sometimes I just sing in the spirit just to get inspired. But... Uh, I'm, and I'm speaking in local <laughs> churches, but anyway, it was easy to be inspired yep. here. Very much. Um, this morning, about 4:30, the Lord gave me a passage of scripture <clears throat> to speak over you, and this has to do with anyone in the room who, well, it's for all of us because it's scripture, but specifically for anyone who has found themselves. Um, struggling to sleep, um, having a lot of, like, your mind racing, uh, you know, the anxiety kind of thoughts, the, the um, going to bed and just going, everything's going around in your head, and sometimes when you wake up, it's still going around in your head. And so if this applies to anyone in this room, I'm going to ask you to be super brave and not that you guys aren't, but seems like you guys are totally okay with this. Um, would you stand up? Awesome. So, out of Isaiah 49, um, verse 4, These were the words of Jesus, and I want you to just receive a prophetic word where Jesus, in his humanity, how he felt Mm -hmm. about everything that he was going through, um, the mockery, the, the things that were going on in his culture, obviously the persecution, all the, all the stuff huge amounts. You all know the story. And so these are his words. Mm -hmm. I've worked for nothing. I have nothing to show for a life of hard work. And then he goes on to say, yet I will let God have the last word. I will let him pronounce his verdict. It is for him, not me, to decide what is due me. It is for him, not me, To decide the outcome of my work, I find the source of all my strength in my God. And so over you, I want to bless you um, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. May you be faithful in your work and leave it up to God to decide the outcome. The very task that seems to have defeated you is the very thing God has prepared you for. What appears to be a loss is not your ultimate reality. It is only momentary. 
Though you momentarily fail to see it, God's strength has been there all along. Even, it would, even when it did not seem so, he is so present with you and in you, his divine strength became your strength. And I want to bless you with this passage from David, the psalmist. And it's a prayer. And I'm just praying this over you as though you're praying this as well. Lord, prove our enemy wrong when they say God can't help you. Let the light of your brilliant face break through and shine down on us. Secure our night and break open our morning with fresh insight and new joy. You alone are my inheritance, my prize, and my pleasure. I leave my destiny and its timing to you. I'm overwhelming. I'm overwhelmed by the privilege that comes with following you. You have given me the best. You counsel and correct me, and your whispers in the night give me wisdom, showing me what to do next. My confidence will not be shaken because you are close to me and always available every moment. I experience your presence all around me. In your splendor, my heart and soul explodes with joy. And so I'm making this as a declaration for us. I declare that I will sleep in peace, resting confidently and safely in your presence. No matter what happens, I will live life unafraid. For you, Lord, bring me a continual revelation of resurrection life that brings me face to face with you. Hmm. So be it. So be it. Thanks, babe. Yeah. Yeah, you bet. You want to hold on to that then? Mm -hmm. I'm going to use this one. You know, I... Uh, Whenever I hear these blessings that Jan writes, I just, I hear them more than you because I live with her. But every time, I just get something new out of these things. Whenever you take scripture and form a blessing out of it, uh, the same anointing is on that blessing as was on the scripture. You ever notice when Paul says, may you this, may you that, he's blessing you. And the power of a blessing is so critical. Those of you that stood up. You're going to go back and there's something different in you now. It's just that you didn't stand up for religious duty. You stood up in the anointing of the Lord. And when you return back to that place where the restlessness was, you'll find it a disturbing peace. The peace will disturb the restlessness. Um, you know, before I preach, Jen and I just like to stand together and, and share things that are on our hearts immediately. And uh, again, yesterday, I was praying for this time. And frankly, we've been doing this so long, uh, we get tired of hearing our own prayers, and we pray in the Spirit most of the time. And uh, I've come to understand that prayer in the Spirit actually has interpretation, not in the traditional way that we would think of Pentecostal church. If somebody says, I've got a word, pastor brings them up, they give a tongue, and there's interpretation. But whenever you pray in the Spirit, there is an interpretation for that at some point in a circumstance that you didn't know you needed that prayer for. And then we walk into that circumstance, something happens. And so when I prayed, the Lord gave me a word. And I sense this word is primarily for this house. And yet I think it also has to do with the vineyard movement. And uh, it's real short. It's only about a paragraph, short paragraph. But just uh, discern this yourself. See if it makes sense. Here it is. And I, when I hear from the Lord, I try to let him dictate, and I try to be as accurate as possible with him. So I'm just reading you what he gave me. Here's the word. Look back at your roots. Return to those roots, and I will reveal your future. 
The fruit waiting to be harvested will be released into your hands by your obedience to that original planting. And what that has meant for me as I've meditated over this word and looked at your history, that you guys have just had a healing conference, right? I remember when the John Wimber thing all started. I'm that old, okay? I remember when that happened. I was sad when he died at 62. I thought, boy, that was too quick. And I love the fact that he shook the foundations of theological institutions that had become so cerebral they lost contact with the Spirit. And what I think God wants to do is he wants different vineyard churches to be lighthouses of an original calling, an original planting. And that doesn't mean that we come together and have a great church service and then we go home and we live the same way that we live. But that we leave this place, we leave a conference and we go out into a community and we begin to affect change by not relying on paid clergy to do stuff, but you and me, here we are. Everyone in this room who knows Christ has the ability to walk in that immediate anointing. And so if you don't know what your roots are, I would suggest buying some books that define the roots of the, of the Vineyard Church. And go back, because those, those root things that God gives us, those manifestations of his presence, are meant to carry into the future with us. They're not to be left behind in the history. They're part of the future that God has for us. So I want to just say I bless you in Jesus' name with an understanding of what your roots are. That as you return to those roots and are obedient to those roots, a future crop that you know nothing about is going to manifest. And I'm just going to say something I saw in worship, and, and Lord, I'm just going to... I hope you clean up the mess I'm going to create right now. <laughs> but, but I just I saw a, a bus pull up in the parking lot and people pouring out of the bus to come into the sanctuary here to be touched by Jesus. It was almost like I just sensed that people were being offloaded here to be touched by the Lord. And uh, so, Lord, whatever that means, would you awaken this house to the full potential that you've called them to have? And as they walk in that, Lord, would you give them the strength and understanding required to endure through all the allocades that come with an anointing like that or an outpouring, but to move beyond that and to really stay so close to you that they never would want to leave your presence and assume a counterfeit for anything. So I didn't know what Garris was going to share, but during the worship time while I was singing in the Spirit, the Lord reminded me to say to tell all of you, um, similar to what Garrus just shared, and the Lord was saying to look back and remember. And what he's what he's basically saying, and all through Scripture, you'll you'll see the Lord say, "Look back, remember the Exodus, or remember what I did here, or remember what I did there." So that's his story. That's your God story. And you have the God story for the vineyard as well. And what that word means, it's testimony. It's a testimony of what God has done. The word testimony means do it again or do time again. And so as you remind each other of the stories, the God yeah. stories, not just of the vineyard, but God's stories in your own life or God's stories throughout all of Scripture, you are saying, Lord, yeah. do it again. Even your, even your tithe is a form of do it again. It's a testimony. So you're giving to the Lord because you're not giving to somebody who's dead, right? You're giving to somebody who's <laughs> alive. He's the resurrected Lord. So when you give your tithe, it's a form of testimony. Yeah. 
And as you do that, it's God's doing again. He's doing again. He gives more. He gives more to pour through you. Just thought I would throw that in. <laughs> That's a good so, toss. I like that. Yeah. You have something else? No, I'm, I'm, I'm good. Okay. So one more thing. <laughs> During worship. Um, singing in the Spirit. Um, we all have heard the, the phrase, there's no such thing as peace at any cost. That means that you, when there's conflict happening and you just sit back and you get quiet and you don't engage, somehow hoping that you can have peace, you know that doesn't work, right? And so for all of you, and I know everyone who has lived through 2020 and now 2021, half of it, having peace has been a huge fight. And I felt like during the worship time that some of you were saying, I am, God is the Prince of Peace, the Lord Jesus has that name, the Prince of Peace. Why can't I have peace about this situation? Why am I so uptight every time I think about this? And um, so I'm supposed to remind you or tell you um, that the word peace, the root, root word of peace means deal with the authority of chaos. You're not going to have peace until you deal with the authority of chaos. So the prince of peace, the commander, the warrior deals with the authority of chaos and brings peace. You have been called, that place where you don't have peace, you have been called to deal with the chaos, the authority that the enemy is using against you. In other words, you're in a fight, and now you know what to do when you lack peace. That's a good word. Thanks, babe. Thank you. See you. That's why I married her. <laughs> you know, it will be 48 years this, uh, this August. And, uh, yeah. And I'll tell you, it's like God drugged two goofy kids into the future. It's just like, we didn't know how to be married. We never went to a marriage conference. We just fought it out in forgiveness and grace, and here we are today. So, you know, marriage is not a perfect science. Some of you that are young and married and struggling with stuff, you'll get over it. You know, it's, you'll find that uh, oneness is a lot better than twoness. <clears throat> so, anyway, for the last year, actually now a year and a half, just before the pandemic thing happened, we got a word from the Lord, and the Lord says, I want you to go on a, a very deep sabbatical. You know, I've been involved in church ministry for 42 years. That's a week or two, and longer than some of you have been alive. And and I've seen ups and downs and left and right, and most of the time I was a pastor in different types of um, positions along with that. And I've always been active in doing something. You know, every, every day I woke up and had some prescribed thing I was going to do for God, I thought. And, and then the Lord told us to both in our uh, deep sabbatical. In other words, we, just, we moved away from uh, a lot of things that would make pastors kind of nervous. We, we, we moved away from a lot of connection. And that was because we were on assignment by God, not uh, under the rule of man. And, 
It's not a rebellious thing. It was a work of the Lord. So we moved into this sabbatical. And then the pandemic came. For us, we were already in isolation. We were already uh, on the wall of assignment God had for us. He said, I want you to be watchman on the wall, but I don't want you watching for the devil. I want you to watch for me. There's two kinds of watchmen. There's the nervous intercessory prayer watchman that sees a demon under every bush. Then there's the other one that I think is more biblical. They look for the approach of the Lord, and then they warn the church of what's blinding their eyes to see that approach. You see the difference between the two? One's always concerned with, you know, this or that, conspiracy, this, fear that, and fear that. And they see all of that because the devil's very capable of providing that imagery for you if that's all you're looking for. But the watchman on the wall that I've come to understand is somebody who looks out and sees the approach of the Lord and then warns the church what's blinding their eyes to seeing the beauty of his coming. That's why healing ministry is so powerful. Disease can manifest physically, and then somebody says, I see healing on you right now. In Jesus' name, stand up and walk. You see, it's a way of thinking. So what I want to do today is I I know you get really good biblical teaching every week. I'm going to just teach, share what's on my heart. It's kind of a prophetic apostolic vibe with it, and it really is something that I've been carrying for a while. And I want to share it with you because from the wall I'm seeing some things. And, uh, and I bet from your wall of intercessory uh, prayer and insight you see things too. But these are things that I'm seeing now. Um, you know, I'm, I'll be 72 years old here in a few months. And so I'm, a, I'm an elder both in physical age and in church age. So I'm not a young little pup anymore. I've been around the horn a few times and being kicked a few times. So I, I'm still alive And that's a a glory to Jesus kind of thing. And I still love my wife, and she loves me, and we're still okay, not because we were perfect, but we just kept crawling back on the altar, you know. And uh, so I want to share some things that come from that perspective of seeing a long history of the church, at least from my perspective, but also seeing some immediate things that are taking place right now. And I'm going to share three things with you this morning. Uh, It's not a Bible study. This is not a Bible study. But we're going to use the scripture. But this is insight that I think uh, God wants us to see. And the first of these has to do with what I uh, would call defining your order of allegiance. Defining your order of allegiance. There's an order of allegiance that if it's not maintained, will produce chaos in the church. It'll produce a gospel message that's been altered to such a degree that it looks like every other religious expression put on the mantle of culture. And here's the order. Here's the order of allegiance, and I want to process it with you under this first point for a few moments. The first order of allegiance for us is Christ and his word. The second order of allegiance, as you move down that order of allegiance, is to the church. And then the third order of allegiance is to culture. And what happens many times, I've seen this happen over a course of the last 41 years, whenever that that order of allegiance is messed with or put out of sync, what happens is the church um, gets confused. It gets to a place where it uh, doesn't know how it's supposed to relate to culture. When you, when you flip that around and culture becomes preeminent in how we present the gospel, then the church then becomes confused and the message that Christ and his word gives becomes watered down and it's not the message of the gospel. If you think on the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit fell on the day of Pentecost, what I love about that day 
And I think a pivotal verse there is about verse 11 or 12, where it says that once the noise of Pentecost happened, the community came to the noise. And they came to that noise saying, we have heard of the wonderful things God does in a language that makes sense to us. But what happens in the church when we we succumb to almost a marketing mindset is that instead of Christ and his word, the church and culture, we flip it and we go culture first. How do they want to hear this message? And what that does then is it confuses the church who's been reading the Bible, but now we as leaders make the culture the primary target when the Lord's the primary target. When we honor him and lift him up and glorify him, the culture actually will come running to us. I've got Bible for that. And a lot of times we, uh, we have a gospel that really doesn't do much. It's a small G gospel. It's not the capital G gospel. I'm done trying to make Jesus comfortable or acceptable. I just want to manifest his presence in my life. And that's the beauty of what happens in, in worship. Um, that's the beauty of what happens when, a he, when healing takes place. If it's really authentic worship and not a show, if it's authentic, you know, that heart stuff. I've said under Lewis before, you guys have a spirit of worship here that's just wonderful. It's authentic, it's real, it's not manufactured, there's no, you know, fog machines and lights going off and, you know, that kind of stuff. It's just, here it is. And the culture that is looking at this church and others are just, they've been created to hear the gospel. You don't have to create them to hear the gospel. They have been created to hear the gospel. No matter how far in deception they are, they were created by God to be receptors of the gospel. And if that's our assumption, then all of this changes. Look at the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, because it's in here. These three things, Christ and his word, the church and culture, Here's what happened, day of Pentecost. Verse 42, all the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. There's the first two, by the way. The Lord and his word and the church. And to sharing meals, including the Lord's supper, and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them all. And the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had, even their four-by-four. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day. It's interesting, they went to the temple and worshiped. I wonder what that was like. Met in homes for the Lord's Supper and shared their meals with great joy and generosity. All the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day, and here's the third one, the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. You know, we're not responsible for that. Only God can do that. If we, if we make a place for his presence to be manifest, he will do this. He'll bring the culture to the church. And I'm not talking about isolating here and sandbagging the church and you're going to be this little cult in here that eats granola and wears a toga and, and looks weird. We're not talking about that. It's, it's like we have, to, we have to trust this gospel and the power of the gospel to such a degree that we don't remanufacture it into something that doesn't even sound like the gospel. You know... It's, it's said they worshipped in the temple. This area they were in is called Solomon's Colonnade. Historically, they stayed there after the day of Pentecost somewhere between two and four years. 
They didn't move. Boy, I tell you, stuff was happening. It was a party. It was a, it was a Bethel conference kind of thing. It was, a, it was a Vineyard Grants Pass kind of thing. It was one of these things where God's moving and we had refreshments and we gave speakers bottles of water and it was just kind of really cool, you know? But the problem with that is um, we can become isolated like the first century church and it took persecution to move them away from Solomon's colonnade to get on with the business of Matthew 28, the Great Commission. See, we have a tendency to park at the last manifestation. And that's not what the manifestations of God's presence are given. The manifestation of Pentecost was to empower the church supernaturally to commit the Great Commission, to go out into the nations and disciple the nations of the world to the uttermost parts of the earth. That couldn't happen if our party of presence superseded what God wanted us to do. And so as a result, they took the presence with them into new territory. By the way, do you know that you never, if you're a missionary type, you never get past Jerusalem, even though the scripture says Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth? Because you'll leave your Jerusalem and you'll go to Samaria and you'll teach them how to reach their Samaria. And then you'll leave Samaria and go to Judea and teach them how to reach, reach their Jerusalem. And then you go to the uttermost parts of the earth and tell them how to reach their Jerusalem. So you can't get past Jerusalem you can geography-wise, but you can't ministry-wise because there are people here that want to have a touch of God right where they live. And when you go to another context, you teach them how to do that. We spent two deployments as missionaries, once in the West Indies and another in Eastern Europe. And when we went there to, to oversee and manif- uh, uh, serve churches, what we did was to just show them how to reach Jerusalem. It wasn't like, you know, the old saying, if you're speaking and you're 50 miles from home, you're an expert in everything. That's the last thing I wanted them to understand about me. I just wanted them to know, what's it like in downtown Kingston, Jamaica, when there's poverty and murder and rape and pillage going on? How can you there reach people for Christ? For me, that was like in uttermost parts of the earth. It wasn't Mobe and uh, the North Coast when it's all kind of inclusive Resorts where you get a little wristband, they lock the doors and put up the walls and the barbed wire and keep everybody out so you can have a Jamaican experience. This was raw Jamaica. Or Eastern Europe, when in Albania, I can remember one time where they surrounded our building. This is years ago, just out of communist rule. They surrounded the building, machine gun fire. CNN said there were 30,000 people outside trying to break into the building, and they took us out, honestly, with the guy. Remember, um, what was that? That little squirrel, Bullwinkle. Remember the Bullwinkle show? And remember Natasha? Yep. Natasha and that... It, they came in looking like that. They had long coats. They looked like something out of a Cold War novel. And they took us two by two out of the building. You see, we, <laughs> we live in this gospel that has to manifest itself in ways that are crazy. And that day, the Spirit of God manifested himself in ways we never... We shook in our boots... But this gospel is so real, it works everywhere, everywhere. And a lot of those people in that crowd of 30,000, not because we preached or because anything, because we got on an airplane and left because our flight was just within hours. It was like God was reaching a community that was in upheaval. And the only thing that would reach that community was the gospel. And today there's a place called the Stevens Center in Tirana, Albania. And the whole culture comes to it. And the Stevens Center is a church, it's a restaurant, it's a printing press, it's a meeting room, it's a, it's a B&B. It's the church of the future. You see, I don't want to ever get to the place where 
the culture tells me what it needs because it doesn't know what it needs. It really doesn't. I've got a book called the Bible. It tells me what they need. They just need love, acceptance, and forgiveness. And you and I are tasked with that job. In this pandemic, our problem has been many times we look at all this cultural stuff going on and we get, excuse the French, PO'd at everybody that doesn't think like we do. It's okay to have an opinion, but it's okay to realize sometimes my opinion is not completely pure as a driven snow. Second thing that I'm processing lately is understanding the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord, you know the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 11, talks about the seven spirits of God. And the text there is really talking about Jesus, the Messiah. But verses 1 and 2 read this way in Isaiah 11. Out of the stump of David's family will grow a shoot. Yes, a new branch, capital B, bearing fruit from the old root. And the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. That's describing Jesus. That last part kind of confuses me. That Jesus would have a fear of the Lord. I mean, he's God. Why would he have the fear of the Lord? Well, it's not what it means. It's not about fear. Brian Simmons, who wrote uh, that great translation of the scripture that we all, uh, hopefully you're reading it, the Passion Translation, just a great another reflection of truth. He said that word should be translated loyalty. A synonym to that uh, with loyalty would be uh, allegiance. He lived in a loyalty to the Father. And see, when you're in a place where reverence and awe and all those things are going on, all of a sudden you want more than ever to be loyal to the Lord. And coming back to that first thing I talked about, that order, Christ in the Word, church, then culture. If I move away from that loyalty to the Lord, I'll never live in that righteous fear of the Lord. And I think there's so much going on in our, our church culture right now that um, has caused us to not really think it's okay to talk about the fear of the Lord because we didn't know what it meant. It just means I wake up today, I want to be loyal to him. I want to wake up today, I want my allegiance to be Christ first before culture, before nation, before anything. Our, if our first allegiance or loyalty is not first and foremost Christ, we're going to stray from stuff. Listen to what Paul said in Ephesians 4. I've been in Ephesians 4 for six years now, and I'll tell you a little story here in a minute why. It's because um, if, if we're not doing what Ephesians 4 talks about when Paul's talking about apostles and prophets, evangelists and pastors and teachers, if we're not getting input from those four, five gifts, then we're really not going to ever come to maturity. Never. Listen to these verses in Ephesians 4. It talks about us being trained and equipped to bring up to a full stature of maturity. I used to think maturity was the goal. It's not the goal. It's the platform from which the goal is demonstrated. Listen to these words. After we're matured, equipped, then we will no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. 
We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever they sound like the truth. Instead, we'll speak the truth in love. Maturity is a platform from which I speak the truth in love. The evidence that I have been matured and equipped is can I speak the truth in love to a culture that is rejecting the gospel outwardly, but inwardly they really were created to want it. 2016, I got a call from a friend of mine, Denny Klein, who pastored um, Jesus Pursuit Church up in Albany. Great guy, a great revival center over the years. And he called me up and says, Garris, I'd like you to speak at a conference we're going to have on Reformation. Immediately I thought he was talking about Martin Luther, you know, 1500s. No, he was talking about the new Reformation, and he was a friend of mine. So I said yes to the invitation, hung up the phone, and says, God, what did I get myself into? Because I really don't know much about this. And that was five years ago. Well, the Lord says, I'm going to take you to the Graduate School of Theology on the subject of Reformation, and I'm going to, I'm going to teach you what to say in the next six months that you have before the conference. Now, I didn't really, I liked the fact that the Lord said that to me. I didn't like the fact that I had to learn something, considering I'd been doing this for so stinking long. What did I not know? And I apparently didn't know this. And immediately the Lord took me to Acts 17. Paul's coming up to uh, Areop- or the Acropolis area of, of Athens. And Jan and I have been there a number of times. And there's this rock that he spoke on. And it's just kind of a cool place. The Lord took me to Acts 17. And I said, okay, Lord, been there, done that, read this, taught it. What's, what's new here? You know, again, he's taking Mr. Teacher back to become a student. And he says, well, you remember that uh, altar to the unknown God that Paul used as a tool to get into the culture that day? I said, yes. He said, that's how this Reformation message to the church is going to be. It's going to be like they're not getting saved again, but they're hearing a message for the first time because most of the church doesn't understand what it means to follow the Great Commission that says, go and make disciples of all nations. It doesn't say people first, even though that's that's the uh, process. You get people saved, nations get touched. But he had them focus on ethnos, the, the nations first. And I said, okay, Lord, what's that mean? He said, then go back to Ephesians 4. I read this text of Scripture, and I, I read it through real quickly. And the Lord says, no, you missed it. I said, re- he said, read it again. And I read it again. And then I saw it. Not because, in my intellect, I saw it in the Spirit motivating me to see something. And then I saw for the first time that the goal of maturity... Or the evidence of maturity of a saint is, can I speak the truth in love where God has me planted in culture? 1975, two guys, two men, Lauren Cunningham from YWAM and uh, Bill Bright from Youth for, uh, was it Campus Crusade for Christ or Youth for Christ? I forget which one. They met in, uh, in um, Colorado Springs. They both had this revelation from God and they were excited to share it with each other when they got there, not knowing the other one heard exactly the same word. And at the same time, a guy named Francis Schaefer in Labrie in Switzerland <clears throat> also heard the same word. So three mind molders of the church in 1975 heard the same word, and it was this. There were s- spheres of culture. We call them mountains of culture today. Spheres of cultural influence that if the church is not involved there, they're not really going to uh, do the Great Commission very well. And the seven spheres were government, religion, education, economy, arts and entertainment, media and family. Now, we're here today, and one sphere is religion. Here we are. Grants Pass Vineyard, a great place to be on a Sunday morning. We're here today, and that's a mountain or a sphere called religion. And then you're sitting next to somebody who's part of your family, right? 
maybe, but family. So religion, family, we're all there. But we don't even think that the possibility that we're supposed to influence the other five areas of spheres of culture. In fact, Lauren Cunningham believed in this so much, he created University of the Nations around that concept in Kona, Hawaii. And I, I then began to see what the Lord was saying to me. He was saying, Garris, the church needs to awaken to its mission. And I said, Lord, what is that? That everyone that you speak to, and I'll say that today, everyone in this room hearing my voice right now or over this little microphone that's broadcasting this, every one of you tomorrow morning will go back either a place of retirement or a place of work. And you have a, a, an ability to speak the truth and love there. And understanding that uh, ability to speak the truth and love will produce in you uh, the ability to share God's heart in a county workplace or in a retail store or in a form of government or wherever you might go tomorrow morning. And what God is trying to do is he's trying to waken the church up to not only be loyal to him, but to be loyal to the calling. Because a lot of us are going to go back to work Monday morning and we're going to listen to this message and we're not going to open our mouths and speak the truth in love because we have a fear of man more than we have a fear of God. What would happen if, and I'm not just saying to do a cold drop on people, but what if tomorrow the Holy Spirit moved on everybody in this room to go into their place of work and share their faith in a way that doesn't sound like four spiritual laws, but sounds like a real live thing, not just a mathematical boom, 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 here you are and there's a theology and you're going to go to hell if you don't believe this, that kind of thing. But what if, what if you incarnated the gospel to such a degree that you became the Pentecost in your place of influence and people at work started to come to you? I'm here today. I'll tell you why. A guy named Steve Johnstone. I've been looking for him for 40-some years. I can't find him anywhere. If you know Steve Johnstone, they used to live in San Jose, California, and worked as a lifeguard at Westmont High School in California. Find him. Tell him Garris wants to say thanks because here's the deal. I was living... Uh, a life that wasn't very honoring to the Lord, working in the pool with him. And then one morning he started to say something about Jesus to me. And I was a backslidden Christian since I was a little kid. I just didn't, I got saved one Sunday and then didn't follow through on it. He said, you ever, you ever do a Bible study? And I said, what do you mean Bible study? You know, just how about we get here a little early? And I said, sure, just if it'll shut him up. And so I met about 10 minutes early, ran through the Bible, and all of a sudden I had an encounter with Jesus Christ, and I'm here today because that guy took time to, to open his mouth and speak the truth and love to me. All the fruit of my ministry is going to go back through him and through my pastor, Dr. Blaine Bishop, at Calvary Baptist Church in Los Gatos, California. Those were the two men that just shook my tree and, and showed me the fruit of the Spirit. And God's working. And I, I, I look at this and I think, what would happen if everyone in this room became a Steve Johnstone to somebody out there at your place of work or where you drink, if you're retired, where you meet with those folks to drink another cup of boring coffee? What if we spoke the truth and love to people? They would come. When I wrote, you know, I, I, I write a few things once in a while, but. I'm usually up about 3.30 or 4 o'clock in the morning, right until about 8 every morning. And I have a pretty active blog life with several thousand blog articles. I've written a few books. My last two books were about Reformation. And the first one, called The Sound of Reformation, just was a reduction of those sermon notes from that invitation to speak in 2016. You know, save yourself 12 bucks, here's the book in one sentence. 
We need to learn how to speak the truth in love. And the other book is called Beyond Exploring the Frontier of God's Expanding Revelation. That one there is how to put together a life and teams and become either a scout, a pioneer, or a settler in the movement of God and how powerful it is. My, my relatives were on the first Applegate wagon train in this valley. I never knew that until we were here three years. I'm a descendant of Daniel Boone. I'm a nephew of his. A great, 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 great nephew of his. And his... Uh, Grandson was on, George Boone. Oh, excuse me, Alfonso Boone was on there. He had a son named George. He's buried in the Jacksonville Cemetery. The town God brought us out of Eastern Europe and planted us in. And I've got two relatives buried up there. They were on the first wagon train. If you're my relative, you're going to get buried somewhere. And I, so I wrote that whole book using that metaphor of the westward expansion of how the Applegate wagon train was actually created and what was going on and you see this thing about, um, about Reformation, which is going to be my last point. It's really important because it all goes together. All these points go together. They may seem separate, but they all are together. If you really have your order of allegiance down pat, you're following Christ and his word, and you're active and alive in the church, then the culture becomes uh, a, a target for something that... Um, you never would realize. And there's, no, there's nobody in this room that doesn't have a kingdom mandate upon their life to affect culture. Now, a third point is this, is that I'm, I'm seeing that people need to develop uh, the mindset of a reformer. But here's the problem. What's, re, what's cultural reformation look like? Here's the two options available. One kind of looks like a Christian Taliban. Everything is forced. Going to force you to do this, do your sex this way. Going to force you to drink that, force you to do that. We're going to force you to do this. We're going to force you to do that. If you don't do it, we're going to force you anyway. Christian Taliban. Under the guise of a, a warped mentality of some forms of evangelical Christianity in America. It's, it's a mess. Nobody ever falls in love with that. You just fear to open your mouth. It's like an abused wife. The other side is the word Flourish where the real reformation of the kingdom of God, because godly principles are being spoken in love and with truth by the church, all of a sudden those institutions of government, religion, education, economy, arts, entertainment, media, and family begin to shift their emphasis and focus over time, because we Pentecostals want it done yesterday. Shandala, boom, it's done. But some of these things take time. And over time, those institutions begin to shift and change, and the kingdoms of this world become the kingdom of our Lord. And I think, I think when I look at this, I, I think we really have to evaluate two sides. Do I want a, another form of Christian Taliban, or am I comfortable enough to speak the truth in love and trust God with the timing, but seek the highest good of a culture? They may not even know what that is. Whatever it is, in the end, I want them to flourish. It's kind of like Maslow's uh, hierarchy of need, where sometimes people are so hungry they can't hear the truth. Give them a hot dog first and let them digest it and get some health back in their body. Not that a hot dog is going to do that, but... You know, we, we, we have taken our relationship with Jesus and done weird things with it. You know, Jesus fed the 5,000. He could have just said, hey, you don't need to be fed. You're just here for spiritual stuff. Hit the road, go back to your place. He stopped and he fed them. He did a miracle to feed them. I had a, I had a great friend of mine. 
He's got a doctorate, a real one. Didn't buy one on a fly-by-night doctor mill, but he actually went to school for it for a long time. And um, so a doctor in front of his name makes some sense. Got a lot of doctors out there that... Yeah. Anyway, a friend of mine, Harold Eberly, is a real doctor. You ought to see his dissertation. It's this thick. It's called Father God Theology, Father Son Theology. I got exhausted reading the thing. He had to create it. That's a real doctor. But this friend of mine walked into us, speaking at a church up north somewhere, and I was sharing this point about the church being reformers. And he told me, he came up to me afterwards. He said, you know, when you started that reformer thing, I've heard this before, I got a little bit nervous. And I've known him for 35 years. He can talk to me that way. <clears throat> I said, I got nervous. But then I listened to you talk, and that thing about flourishing changed it. And that's something I could get behind. Because you see, love is seeking the highest good for another person. Now, what's the ultimate good? Yeah, I get to know Jesus, but there are some goods that are in the moment. And what's the highest good for that family right now that you're living next to that are struggling, they lost their job? How about this? How about you crack open the savings and make a house payment for them? That's, a, uh, that's sharing your faith, by the way. What about uh, including somebody in your family meal or your sphere of influence that you're not sure you really like, but you, you know that the Lord's saying that. See, these, these, are, these are the way the church needs to get, kind of get out of the sanctuary a little bit. Speaking the truth in love means living the truth in love. And we have an opportunity right now, <clears throat> as the culture emerges from the lockdown, to offer them something more than they had when they entered the lockdown and something def definitely more than the pain and the sorrow they've experienced. We're, we're, we're in a position now, I've, I've seen certain of these eras, I would say, in the last few years of church. 9-11 was one, everything changed there. 2008, everything changed. The pandemic now, everything changed. These are markers that are going to go down in history. So what the church does with people who are coming out of the prisons of those moments of time will be determining where we're going to go as a church in the future. So what's the great passion you have? The question I would ask right now as I get ready to close is the passion you have the passion of Christ? Or is it something you picked up on your, on your favorite news channel and you're just mad about something? That ain't going to change anybody. You're going to change one, one person. Everybody knows pretty much all the evidence. Another piece of evidence, another gotcha, another meme is not going to change anybody. And for those of you not on social media, a meme is just a ridiculous little picture that tries to say something stupid. <clears throat> I have made plenty of mistakes in my life, and maybe even the last year and a half. And God can work with us in our mistakes, but as long as we're willing to speak the truth in love. So the, the, the truth and love there is primarily about Jesus Christ. The rest of it's subject to our interpretation. Does that make sense? I, I can have an opinion about certain things, and that opinion can be valid in my heart, but it may not be the opinion that the Lord wants to use to bring people to Him. Remember on the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit fell, 
the people came running and they said, the, the person representing this whole crowd of people, and there were upwards of a million people in that whole region, says everybody came running. That's quite an exodus. When they came, they just, they, the man said, we heard something spoken in a language that told us about the wonderful things God has done. That's our message. Leave the politics to the politicians. Leave the pundits to the pundits that give the pundits. Leave the rest of that to those folks. Speak the truth and love about Jesus Christ and it cuts through all that crapola to get to the the heart of what's going on in somebody's life. Because see, they were created to hear what you carry. If we spend the rest of our life arguing about natural situations, that can be spiritually byproducts. Absolutely, I get that. But if that's all that we have as a message of the church, we really have put Jesus on the mantle of every other cultural option, and he sounds and looks the same and has the same lexicon to speak from, and he has no transformational power. Jesus is going to walk into the church and become Lord of all, and in the end of that time when he does that, then loyalty, allegiance, The fear of the Lord will rise up in us and anything that comes down the pike that doesn't represent that Lord that we serve with that allegiance, um, we're just going to cast it aside and let our our voice be something different. I want to pray for you and I'll turn it back to you, Pastor. uh, These are things I've been struggling with personally. And uh, most of what I'm doing right now is in the area of Reformation, just to awaken the church. It's an assignment God's given to me. And because it, it, it uh, opens up and releases potential in people. And you, boy, if you could just know the potential you have. Some of you are still living under the lies your parents gave you. Some of you are still equating your kingdom potential to the flops in your business career that you've had. And the Lord's saying, stop that. It's not about those things anymore. It's about your willingness to obey me. This morning I wrote something on my blog uh, about dreaming. I, I don't, I, I'm, I'm glad people have, you know, I have a five-point dream and I'm going to get it done. Good, go for it. I have none of that stuff. I'm living a dream right now. And I don't know how I got here. God picked this broken, imperfect, fearful man, called him into what I'm doing right now, just like you are called into what you're doing, and through acts of confession, repentance and yielding to grace and mercy, I'm standing in a place today, I don't know how I got here, it's better than I could have ever described to you. And I'm, this is my dream. I say, aren't you dreaming for something more? <clears throat> There's nothing more. I mean, yeah, i got heaven coming, but I don't need to live a life of striving. And when you know, when you know, you know, it, it becomes the dream. And it's not an excuse to not do something. I've got plenty of things going on in my life all the time. But the real true peace that I carry today is because I'm living a dream that was given to me, not through the work of my hands, but by the grace of God. And that's what the world needs to hear, that kind of message, because they're all living under such stress right now. So, Father, I pray for these uh, dear faces that are looking at me right now, that you would touch them, that you would strengthen them, that you would minister to them, that you would awaken them to the voice that they carry. Awaken them to the blessings that Jan read over them today. Awaken them to all of these things so that they can begin to speak the truth and love and that the mark of our maturity is our willingness to speak the truth and love in the vernacular of the culture in which you've placed us. Give us the right words 
Open our hearts and minds to speak the truth in love. And Lord, we believe now that communities and cultures will come to that message. And we don't have to manufacture anything. We don't have to fake anything. But we can just walk in the, the, the Pentecost day of power where nobody knew what was happening. Nobody had a plan. It was just God showing up. And yet in that, God, you fulfilled your great commission in a church that you had to push out of Solomon's colonnade into unfamiliar territory. But when you pushed them into unfamiliar familiar territory, you never took their ability to speak the truth and love away from them. And that's what got them in trouble. And it's what got them into the future. And it's what gave them the ability to become true messengers of truth and culture. I bless this, this house. May the buses start pulling up outside and offloading people from all around who want to touch the hem of the garment of the one who resides in this house. In Jesus' name. Wow, that was like the full meal deal. A lot to think about. Well done. Thank you, both of you. You know, as Garris was sharing, I was thinking of the lepers. Second Kings chapter 7, Samaria is surrounded. It looks like all is lost. The lepers knew that just over the hill was the enemy's camp, and they're like, you know, we're going to die here, or maybe they'll throw us some crumbs. But here's the key point. It says, they arose. They took a chance. Let's stand for a moment. Every journey that I've ever gone on, every hike I've ever been on, starts with one foot in front of the other. It starts with the first step. You know, what I hear Gareth saying today is he's calling you out. It, too many spectators. This isn't a spectator sport. It's a participating game that you guys... John Wimber's heart was everyone gets to play. Come on, guys. What I'd like to do this morning is just call you forward. If that's you, I want you to take a step into all that God has for you. You guys are so amazing. You're so talented in what God has placed in you. And you're one step away from your greatest moment. And remember what Dale Alter said a couple weeks ago, that momentum starts with movement so let's take a step into all that God has for us amen so let's just do that if that's you come on up I just want to pray over you really quick release oh there's an anointing in this room this morning I don't know if you can feel it I can come on up we want to see you released into all that God has for you young and old come on up ministry team you see your assignments you see your assignments oh thank you Jesus thank you God Jan and Garrett you guys are certainly free to walk around and pray for people absolutely absolutely 